Let's open our Bibles. We're going to open to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we're going to just read the first 11 verses. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. When the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, I just need to clear something up as we start. Um, you'll, many of you will know this is one of two passages in the Bible, which there's some doubt whether it was ever in the original document. There's a passage at the end of Mark, Mark's Gospel, and there's this, these 11s here, the 11 verses here that there's a question over whether John put them in the Gospel of John when it was written. And uh, I'm just going to put my flag in the ground and say that I think he did, and I think that um, we, we, we don't need to doubt that this is part of the Scriptures, and I'll give you a couple of reasons. One is, one is that... Um, you know, when, whenever you've read this, you feel that there's something of the ring of truth to it. It, it, it feels and sounds and looks like Jesus, doesn't it? Um, it? There's absolute agreement here with what Jesus says and does, as in other passages in the Gospels. And I know that's not really a concluder, so let me add something else for you. Um, John, the, the Apostle John, the disciple John, he had a, a disciple of his named Papias, who's not in the Bible because he lived just around the end of when uh, the Bible was, was being written and put together. And uh, Papias, in one of his writings, mentions this story. So you can, you can be pretty, I'd say, 90% confident that if Papias knew of this story, he knew of it from his, his, uh, his mentor, John, uh, the disciple of Jesus. So I, I just want to push that aside right at the start. And we're going to be looking at this story because it just grabbed me as I was thinking and praying during the week um, and thinking about what to speak on this week. And I feel that what we have here is a, a moment when you get a glimpse into, almost into the Holy of Holies. You know, the Holy of Holies in the temple is where uh, that point at which man meets with God and man's sin is placed before God and God's fire is there to deal with sin. It's a scary place. People couldn't approach the Holy of Holies for fear of judgment. And, uh, and yet it was also a place of God's grace and hope flowing out to the world. And in this encounter, we have something like that. Because here's a woman, guilty, brought before Jesus, the Holy One. 
And we get a glimpse into the very thing that we've been singing about, the Father heart of God, the love of God towards us as guilty people. And it shows us so much about the grace of God and how God's grace works and operates towards us. And I want to talk to you about grace. We named this church Grace, Grace London, because certainly for me and for many of us, I think it's the most precious word on our tongues, aside from the name of Jesus. That grace encapsulates the heart of what Christians believe. I know it's a word with other definitions, and it has to do with beauty, and it has to do with the way you carry yourself and all that. But in the Bible, the word grace is about God's compassionate love towards us as people. His willingness to come near to us and bless us even when we don't deserve it. And there are three aspects to God's grace which are shown in this story. They're all complementary and powerful and yet distinct in their own way. And I want us to think about each of those three things. They come out in the statements of Jesus, the words that he speaks in the story. And uh, the first, I'll tell you all three, that grace is the great leveler. That grace is stronger than your sin, and that grace is a transforming power. It's the great leveler, it's stronger than your sin, and it's transforming or transformative in its power in your life. And I want to begin with this idea that grace is the great leveler. As the story unfolds, this woman is dragged, I I would imagine, strong-armed by these men, dragged into the temple where Jesus is just teaching as he often did. And she's dragged before Jesus. And Jesus has a moment of decision. What does he do with a woman caught in adultery? And it's this first statement that he says that grabs you. When he turns to all her accusers, after having written on the ground what he wrote, we have no idea. It's the only account of Jesus ever writing. But he, he said these words, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, we need to just clear up what he's not doing here. I don't think that Jesus is in any way uh, wanting to say that wrongs in the community shouldn't be dealt with or challenged or confronted. He wasn't against the idea of justice or of people being um, condemned in the right way for the wrongs that they've done. Uh, Jesus is the Lord of justice. He's actually called the judge. He calls himself the judge. And nor is he in any way wanting to kind of endorse adultery. You don't have to look far in the Gospels to realize that while some people have painted the picture of Jesus as a kind of, um, you know, a, a kind of hippie-esque or bohemian character with a relaxed view towards wrong, that is not the Jesus of the Gospels. He has a very, very sharp division between what he understands to be righteousness and what he understands to be sin, between right and wrong. And he never condones sin. He hates it, despises it, and comes against it consistently. And particularly sins like adultery, because he he saw marriage as a precious relationship ordained by God. So what is going on here? Why does he respond in this way? And to get that, we have to realize that something was wrong in this whole scenario for a few reasons. Let me tell you what was wrong. For one reason... The law at the time among the Jews, the way that they practiced and and worked out God's law, was that 
if you were to be accused of adultery, you have to be caught conclusively in the act. So you have to be found in bed with somebody who you're not married to. And so we, we have to assume that that's what happened to this woman here. In fact, it, it says in the language of John here that she was, they say she was caught in the act of adultery. But it raises the question, why, if she was caught, was the man not also being dragged before Jesus? So we know instantly that there's something sinister about this whole situation. It's not, it's, there's something wrong with it. Here's a second thing. When they accuse her and they, they, they open, as it were, the law and say, listen, this is what the law says. You notice how they, they put it like this. They said, the Lord Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, this is a subtle but important way that they twist God's law. Because if you go back and check the references in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, what you find is that the law is an equal opportunities um, thing which condemns both the man and the woman. There's no preference here for one gender. And so when God says don't commit adultery, he says that both the man and the woman are guilty if they're found in this situation. And yet these guys are twisting the law for some reason. And obviously a light is shed on it here. When John tells us in verse 6, he says, this they said to test him. So we know that when they stand before Jesus with this woman caught in adultery, everything about the situation is wrong. And Jesus, who it says elsewhere, he knew the heart of man. He looks into your face and he knows your heart. He knew that their motives were twisted, turned upside down and, and, and wrong here. So what this story is about is not really a story about Jesus and his approach to people caught in sins like adultery. It's much more about Jesus and how he deals with the issue of religion and religious men like this, and I mean it in this narrow sense. Religion, when it produces self-righteous, self-justifying, narrow-minded people, that's what they were, and that's why they're trying to trip up Jesus up here. Now, it's easy for us because we're 21st century Londoners who have no real connection with 1st century Judaism and its way of thinking and all that kind of stuff. It's easy for us to disassociate ourselves from what those guys were doing. They look like the, the kind of cartoon character evil guys in this story, don't they? And we, we immediately identify with the position of Jesus and the position of the woman. But you've got to realize that in the story, I, I think that one of the reasons this is written is because there's far more in us that's, that's, that's overlapping with the guys, the men, the, the, the religious men in the story than we realize. And what I mean is this in particular, that we have the urge in all of our hearts to feel and to want to feel better than other people. We're always dividing ourselves between us and them. We do it in all kinds of ways, and we're always finding ways to make ourselves distinguished above other people around us. You know, whether you're, you know, if we were to use a political example here, whether you're left or right wing in your politics, you know, one of the things that you always feel is the sense of moral superiority on either side. That if you're with the kind of the left and you believe in you know, big state and lots of handouts, you, you feel morally superior to those who earn lots of money and don't give it away. And if you're on the right and you feel that it's much more about personal responsibility and small government, then you feel morally superior to people who live on benefits and don't work. 
And that's just one example. There are countless examples, if you're honest with yourself, where you find yourself in judgment over people around you or over people groups that you distance yourself from. This is a basic trend in the human heart. There's not a person among us who doesn't have this desire to make ourselves feel better by looking down on other people. And the dark side of that, the twisted side of that, is that by comparing yourself with other people and feeling better about yourself, you become, become unaware of the deep spiritual need in your own heart. I cannot underline the importance of what I'm saying enough here. Because the Bible is less interested in the fact, the mere fact, that we're all wrongdoers or sinners, as it calls us, than in the fact that our worst sin is the desire to cover up the wrongs that we've done and pretend that we're not in the wrong. The sin that underlies all the other sins is our pride and our unwillingness to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy and our need of a saviour. I think that is the reason above all other reasons why when you look across a city like ours, there are many thousands and even millions of people who do not have an interest in coming to know God because of this. They don't feel the spiritual need, the hunger, the brokenness. They feel their life is okay. They feel that life is, they're doing all right. Now, what Jesus does here is he cuts in at the very root of this basic leaning of the heart. And he shows us that you know, there are many things in life that level us all and make us basically all the same. You know, as much as we want to distinguish ourselves from others, even in the way we dress or in our achievements or our ambitions, we all want to feel like we're special in some way. There are certain things in life which just level us all and show us that we're all basically the same. Things like the fact that we, we all die, or that we all need to breathe, or that we all need water. And the grace of God is one of those things that levels us all. Because before God, every human alive needs his grace. That's what Jesus is exposing here when he says to them, and he challenges every person there. He says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He's inviting you to turn your eyes inwards and away from others and look in on your own heart. And honestly assess, if you were in the crowd that day, what would you do? (coughs) Wouldn't you also have had to slink away as they do? I find it really interesting that as John describes it, he says that as Jesus bent down, he wrote on the ground. It says in verse 9, when they heard it, they went away one by one. It was like it took a different amount of time for each person in the crowd for the penny to drop. Because in their fury and their desire to trip Jesus up and to, to, to harm this woman, it takes a little while for it to register. But one by one, the penny begins to drop. And every mind and every heart comes under the sense of conviction there when Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And it says, John says very specifically, beginning with the older ones, they, they were left one by one. You see, the longer that you're alive, 
I think this is one of the reasons why young people often are, are, are most likely to protest, the most likely to hold their hands up in rage against the machine or whatever it is that they feel. Because we feel so, so self-righteous. And the older you get, the mellower you get because you realize the problem isn't so much out there. The problem's in me. And the crowd begins to just dissipate as every heart feels the weight of guilt before the holy eyes of Jesus. I think if you were in the crowd that day, you would have felt something of the weight of your own conviction and sin. I'm, I'm in the wrong. I'm actually just as guilty as the woman that we've dragged here. Grace is the great leveler. Here's the second thing about grace. Grace is stronger than your sin. The woman is left alone there with Jesus. And he asks her this question. He says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no doubt in her surprise, she says, no one, Lord. I think she's probably a little bit confused. What's going on at this point? And then he says to her these words, neither do I condemn you. Now, I think that we have lost something of the astonishment of divine forgiveness for a couple of reasons. One is that we don't really talk about sin that much anymore in our society at large. We tend to have so relativized morality that we don't feel, we no longer feel like we're in a kind of, um, in these categories of righteous and unrighteous or of, of being, uh, the potential of being judged by God. That's one thing. Another thing, of course, is our view of God. Has, we kind of live with the hangover of, of Christian influence in this country. And the Christian teaching about God, unique among world faiths, is that God is love. It says it in the New Testament. But now that we're living in this kind of post-Christian age, where the vestiges of Christianity still influence something of the way we think, we've discarded elements of Christianity and kept the bits that we like. So everything in the Bible about God and his holiness and his holy wrath and his anger against sin, we've kind of forgotten very conveniently, but we've kept everything we like. It's almost assumed, the average person just assumes that if there's a God, then that God is, is pretty benevolent towards me. He's not going to hurt me. He wouldn't do anything bad to me. He wouldn't judge me. And I think because of this, this, this way of thinking that's just so natural to us. The result is that we, we find it hard to look at this situation as anything but a travesty. We think it's so wrong how she was brought before him on these charges. And, and we think we naturally want to side with um, Jesus and with the woman. And we naturally assume that of course he's going to forgive her just like he's going to forgive me. I think that's because we, we tend to assume that forgiveness is an easy thing. Something that it doesn't cost too much. But if you really stop and think about it, forgiveness is the most costly thing in the world. Dealing with wrong, someone bears the cost, either the wrongdoer or the one who's letting you off. You think about it as a debt. Either the creditor or the debtor has to pay that debt. Someone has to bear the bill. And the only people who think that forgiveness doesn't cost are those who've never really had to forgive, not in a serious way. The proof in the scriptures that forgiveness is deeply costly 
is the fact that Jesus had to go to the cross. It hasn't happened yet in the story. These events are taking place before he goes to the cross. But as Jesus says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. I think he does so with the full consciousness that the wrong she'd done and the guilt that was laid on her as a result would be laid on him when he went to the cross. So friends, when we put ourselves into the mindset of this story, we are, as it were, alongside the woman. If forgiveness is costly and if we've done wrong, we need to do as she did and stand beside Christ. I think it's a really striking detail here that as the crowd begins to melt away, John tells us that Jesus was left alone with the woman. And the reason why I think that's so important is because she understood what few people understand which is that it's what Jesus says about her wrong that matters. It's almost as though, you know, this would have been a very traumatic moment for her. Angry men dragging her into the temple. And she's being caught in the act. There's no doubt that she's guilty. I don't have any doubt about it. And as the crowd melts away, you know, she could have made her quick escape at that moment, couldn't she? No one's holding her there. No one's telling her to wait. But for some reason... Her her feet are glued to the ground and she knows she can't move. And I think the reason is that she is awaiting Jesus' word on her situation. Think about it like this. That according to Jesus' own question, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He was the only one there who could rightly have cast a stone at her. He was the only sinless one. He would have been within his right to bend down and grab a stone and lob it at her, according to the law. And she knows in her heart of hearts that his verdict about her is the thing that matters. And the reason why I'm underlining this is because I think every person in the world knows what it is to have a guilty conscience on account of our wrong. But we do things to cover it up. And probably by far the most common way we deal with guilt is we try and find people who are of like mind as us and who have done the same things as us and find solace in a community of thieves, as it were. You see this all over the place. The the tribes gather around certain ideas of what right and wrong are, confirm one another in our right and wrong. You see it among the very elite wealthy people in the world. Why is it that top executives in the world feel it's appropriate to take home millions every year and then more millions in bonuses? It's because all their other peers are doing the same thing. So we confirm ourselves in our sin. But it's not just them. It's us also. We find ourselves drawn along like-minded people and and justifying ourselves because we say everyone in my community is is the same as me. We do it even in churches. You know, some, I think churches get sicker and sicker when they no longer are looking to Christ for what righteousness is, but we're looking around at each other for what righteousness is. And the real and the only question that ever matters when you think about your own guilt before a holy God is not what other people around you say about right and wrong, but what Jesus says about it. What Jesus says about your situation. So when this woman is standing there, 
And our whole fate is hanging in the balance based on what Jesus will say to and about her. She knows that's the only thing that matters. And when she hears the words come out of his mouth, neither do I condemn you. They are the words that the heart most needs to hear. They're the words the heart most needs to hear from the person that we all most need to hear them from. So when you reflect on your own life and you think, what is my wrong? What is it that I feel is obstructing my free relationship with God? What is it that my conscience is accusing me about? What is it that I'm carrying? When you ask yourself those questions, friends, I want to encourage you not to find solace among friends, but to find solace only by going to Jesus. He would say to you these words if you came to him in repentance, if you came to him asking for forgiveness, he'd say to you these words, neither do I condemn you. For us who are Christians, this, this was the turning point when we realized that everything that we'd done wrong could be wiped away by, by a Savior who loves us. If you are not a Christian, I'm saying this to you because, friend, at some point you will face Jesus. It does matter what he thinks about your life. It does matter how you approach him and whether you approach him. Here's the third thing about the grace of God here then. That grace is transforming. It's the leveler and that we all need it. The grace of God is stronger than your sin, but it's also transforming. And what do I mean? Well, at the end, when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he then turns and says this to her, and it's so key to understanding how forgiveness works in the Bible. He says, go and from now on, sin no more. Now, the reason why we've got to look at this and weigh this and understand this is because I think many people have taken the idea of grace as we talk about it and they've twisted it and broken it and abused it, particularly in a few ways. Let me just show you some of the ways that I think that's happened. One of them is that people think of the grace of God as a free pass to continue in whatever lifestyle you want. That when we talk about God's offer of forgiveness is free, a lot of people think, well, that means that I, I don't have to change. And so we use grace to continue in whatever we think, you know, whatever lifestyle we like. I, I don't think you can ever think that unless you've never really tr- tasted the grace of God. The grace of God is not a, a transaction that takes place in an imp- impersonal way. It's an encounter with a father who says to you in a very personal way, I love you and I forgive you. When you encounter God in that fatherly way, when you really encounter him in that way, you know that you can no longer excuse and cover up your wrong. You know you have to change. And you don't want to abuse his love. This is why we can say at one and the same time, yes, grace is free. Yes, forgiveness is free. It's the wonderful aspect of Christianity above 
and in distinction from all the other religions on the planet. God says to you, you do not have to earn this. I want to show you I love you by wiping away your past and doing it completely at my cost. But whenever you encounter God in this way, the forgiving power of God is transforming. You can't continue in your wrong. Not when you really experience his love. No more than a child who knows they've done wrong and come and ask forgiveness from a parent wants to immediately go out and do the same thing. Some people twist grace. They say that grace is some kind of relaxing of the rules. So if the Old Testament was harsh and demanding, Jesus came along and in like moments like this, he, he, he lowers the bar a little bit, makes things just that little bit easier for us to, to say that we're, we're part of God's family. I don't think that's the right way of understanding grace at all. We tend to abuse our faith when we sneak in our preferences and our lifestyle preferences under the banner of, well, God's, God is love, friends. So the gospel becomes an excuse for all kinds of self-expression that has nothing to do with God's righteousness. It's to misunderstand completely the fact that God is a holy God who hates and despises sin so much that he was willing to allow his son to be killed on the cross. That's the degree to which God hates sin. The length to which he would go to deal with it. And friends, some people don't understand the power of grace because they don't think that it's going to make any difference for them when they're enslaved in, in wrong. And maybe you feel today like you are enslaved in something which you cannot get, get rid of. But when Jesus turns to this woman and he says these words, he says, go and from now on sin no more. I think he completely redefines for us the way grace works. Grace is forgiveness, yes, but it's also command and promise. It's a command in this sense. That for her, looking into the eyes of Jesus that day, he was quite simply telling her to stop. And when you are somebody who identifies as, as a Christian, you love Jesus and you thank him for the grace of God in your life that he's wiped away your sin, that he, he makes you clean. Jesus is also telling you, friend, stop. There is a command to this. That when he comes to you with grace and forgiveness, he comes to you and says, go and from now on, sin no more. And it really boils down to a very basic thing of whether you want to obey God or not. Whether you're really calling him Lord or not. There's a verse where Paul talks about what it means to be a Christian. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And it sounds so easy, doesn't it? And it is in one sense. All you need to do is believe and confess. That's the simplest way of understanding what it means to become a Christian. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you confess that he was risen from the dead. You say it. You say it with meaning. But he also says here that you have to confess that Jesus is Lord. Which isn't just in a kind of distant, abstract way. Yes, Jesus is Lord. He's king over the universe. It means in a very, very personal way. He's my Lord. And I want to live for him. 
and I want to obey him from here on. So when Christ comes alongside you and offers you his grace, that grace is a command. My friend, he says, I want you to go and sin no more. I want you to stop. And I'm sure that for all of us here, we we always feel whenever we talk about God's commands and our desire to live for him, we feel something of our conscience again that the Holy Spirit speaks to us and he wants us to change. He wants us to go out of this room different people. But friends, it's not only command. The grace of God is also promise. Because he doesn't just tell us to go away and then offer us no help in the changing. The grace of God actually is a power that works in your life to transform your heart. Right the way from your desires all the way up and through to your actions. This is why I read to you at the beginning of the service these verses from Paul where he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and training us to renounce ungodliness. All the things that we know are wrong and then to live right lives for him. The grace of God is a power at work that trains you to turn away from everything that you know is evil and to turn to God and embrace everything you know he wants you to do. And so friend, if you are a person today who who says, look, I want to embrace the will of God in my life. I want you to understand that when Christ says, go and sin no more, he's not just letting you loose to go and try harder next time. He's wanting to come alongside you with promise. Yes, you're going to trip up and fail a thousand times, but every time you trip up and fail, you can come back to him and you can ask for the sweetness of his forgiveness and he gives you more strength for next time. Which is why the Christian life is one of transformation. And it's always about the work of God in your heart. You were like that, but you will be like that. And at the moment, you're somewhere in the middle. God has given you the power to change. So as I close, I just want to ask you, are you, who are you in this story? Are you one of the guys at the beginning? Not that you're going around wanting to stone people, but, but that you feel in your heart a kind of a self-sufficiency, that your heart's become hardened and impenetrable to the work of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. He wants you to come to him again afresh and say, God, I, I need you. I've been walking away from you. I've been running from you. I've maybe never even prayed to you. God, please, I need you to forgive me. Maybe you're like the woman who was standing there, poised as it were, and you feel, you know, as she did in that moment, before Jesus spoke to her, she felt the weight of the wrong that she was doing. And maybe there was an inkling of hope in her heart that Jesus would say something nice to her, something kind to her, that he'd forgive her. But she didn't know And maybe you're a person who feels that you're carrying, like she did in that moment, the weight of your guilt. And I want to encourage you, friend. You can come to Christ today, and as you say, Lord, forgive me, his word to you is, neither do I condemn you. And in some ways, it's a choice you make at that point, whether you let go of the thing that you've been carrying for years or not. It's a choice that you can make. Or maybe you're like the woman, knowing you've been forgiven. But your thing is today, you need to go out from here and make decisions about the kind of life you're seeking to live. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
You know, if you find yourself in any of those positions, I would love to pray with you. But I want us to respond with communion now and have dealings most importantly with Jesus. I'm going to pass out the bread and I think we'll do communion in the quiet before we sing together. I want to pass out the bread and I want you to approach him afresh. Imagine that you're that woman in the story standing before him. Maybe you read the words again of this passage. What would he say to you? What does he say to you? And as we take the bread and drink the wine, friend, this is your opportunity to drink deeply of the grace of God in a new way today.